Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Hi, this is Martha from Bethesda, Maryland, and I really enjoyed listening to MASH Matters, and I was curious to ask if perhaps you may be doing one with Mr. Alan Alda, since he's been mentioned a few times in the interviews. Again, I really have enjoyed listening to the podcast. Thank you. Martha, what a great idea. We should have Alan Alda on MASH Matters. Jeff, that's a fantastic idea. Well, Martha, yeah. Now, who the heck is this Martha woman? Because she does have good ideas. Think we can get her uh, to write for us or come up with good ideas again? Martha is our new producer. She's our new producer. (laughs) But Martha, the pay sucks, so forget about it. It isn't good. (laughs) It's not big, but uh, you'll enjoy the dinners we'll buy you. Right. Do you like Jack in the Box or what? No, never (laughs) So many creamed weenies. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Match Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time, hosted by a fan, myself, Ryan Patrick, and the man who played Igor Straminsky for nine seasons on the classic television series Mash, Jeff Maxwell. Hello, sir. Hello, Ryan. Boy, that guy, Jeff Maxwell, is a lot of fun. I really like him. He's great. (laughs) He is great. Mm -mm -mm. You know who else is great? Alan Alda. He's pretty great, too. You know, Alan Alda is really great. He's one of the finest, most interesting people I've ever met. I I have the distinct pleasure to work with him for nine years. I uh, really enjoyed knowing him throughout my life. He's been very uh, helpful, and he's contributed some wonderful thoughts to me that I've used to help me in not only in my career, but my life. So uh, yeah, Alan Alda is pretty darn cool. And I think Martha is very prophetic because I think he's going to be here now, isn't he? As a matter of fact, yes, he is. We are uh, so thrilled to welcome the one and only Alan Alda to MASH Matters. And uh, here's a little secret. Here's a little peek behind the wizard's curtain. We actually recorded this interview with Alan several months ago. Right when the pandemic was hitting is when we talked to Alan Alda. But we had other interviews, too, that we had done with Jamie and Gary, and we wanted to make sure that those were out there as well. And so for that reason, we had a lot of listeners write in and tweet us saying, hey, are you taking questions for Alan? I have questions for Alan. I apologize to all the listeners who wrote in with questions. We already had that interview in the can, so that's why we did not ask for your questions. We wanted to also save this interview for our big two-year anniversary special. This is our two-year anniversary of this podcast, Jeff. Oh, my goodness. What did you get me? Did you get me something nice? I love uh, daisies. Daisies are good. Roses. Any of those things. Or cake. I like cake as well. Cake is good. See, the traditional (laughs) gift for the second anniversary is cotton. So I'm going to get you some (laughs) cotton, Jeff. I got that in my mouth already. Let's go on to the cake. Two years we're uh, we're into this journey, and what a trip it has been. Thank you to all the listeners who have gotten us here so far, and we uh, welcome new listeners and look forward to seeing where this crazy road takes us. And uh, I want to thank you, Ryan Patrick, and congratulate you and wish you a happy second year anniversary because this has been a terrific journey. It's not over, by golly, because we're all going to be here for the third anniversary, but uh, 
thank you for this wonderful journey. And it's been a delight to do this for two years. Back at you, pal. It has been such an honor to do this with you. Now, typically in the past, whenever we have interviewed one of the main cast members, we've always split it into two parts. So you get part one and then two weeks later, you would get part two. But as our anniversary gift to you, we're giving it to you in its entirety because it's such a special, special conversation with a very special man. So on our wonderful second year anniversary of MASH Matters, we'd like to present you Mr. Alan Alda. Hello. Alan Alda, it's Jeff Maxwell and Ryan Patrick. Hi, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yes, very well. Good. Can you hear us okay? I hear you fine. Oh. <laughs> Surprises me. I'm doing this on the iPhone. Hey, it's where is this amazing technology or what? I don't know. I didn't hear what you said. Oh. <laughs> Something about technology being great. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Hello, is this yes, on? come in. Is there someone there at the door? <laughs> Well, Alan, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to participate on our wonderful podcast. We have fun doing it. As I've said, it's called MASH Matters, and we did this because we think MASH did matter and it continues to matter. First of all, let me please introduce you to my wonderful partner, Ryan Patrick. Ryan, Alan Alda, Alan Alda, Ryan Patrick. Hello, Ryan. Hello, sir. As Colonel Blake once said, this is an honor that thrills me right down to my toenails. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. I'm sorry to hear about your toenails. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we call it MASH Matters. And before we started doing this, now I certainly knew that the show was very, very popular, obviously. But before we started doing this, I, I hadn't realized quite how popular it was in terms of the impact it had on people. After starting the podcast, the response and the reactions that we get from people writing into us saying how MASH changed their lives. It gave them careers. People wanted to be nurses, doctors, uh, food servers. <laughs> 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 Amazing. Don't forget the food poisoners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, did you know uh, at the time we were doing it how much of an influence the show was? No, I, I didn't. And I, people would stop us in airports and whisper to us like we were part of some secret movement, keep up the good work, you know, things like that. <laughs> and that, it, that sounded like a private group we belonged to. Hmm. I mean, I was aware of the ratings, right. which were terrible in the beginning. And then later, at the end of the first year, started to pick up. And by the second season, we were in the top 10. But before that, we were in the top 78. <laughs> well, I think I joined, I began to participate in the show at the end of the second season, and the ratings shot up. So I, I'm not drawing any conclusions there. But No, it was you. It was you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> You said it. <laughs> so, Alan, I have to ask, what is the MASH-related question that you have just answered to death, that you're tired of answering? I don't hear the same question over and over again that much. Really? Something that keeps coming up is, will there be a MASH reunion? Mm -hmm. And I'm not, not that I'm tired of answering it, but I have tried to say a number of times that we did it and we're proud of it. And now we don't want to drag back all these old people trying to relive it. What old people would that be? Who, who's, who's old people? I think I'm the oldest oh. of the bunch. So that would be me. <laughs> you know, I had heard somewhere, I don't know whether you said it or somebody told me that you're taking boxing lessons. Are you doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody asks me that question again, they're going to get it right in the puss. <laughs> <laughs> you remember uh, Gwen Farrell back on MASH? She was a, a female boxing referee. 
No, I didn't know that. Yeah, she I was. I knew she had all those hamburger stores. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Bat Burger. Bat Burgers, yeah. And she was also a referee. Yes, she was a, a professional boxing referee. Wow. She was the first female boxing referee to have officiated a title match. No kidding. Yeah, yep. My God, you, yep. that's dangerous. You could get hit with a wild punch. Well, no kidding. You know, I got all excited about it. At one point, I said, Gwen, let's kind of make a documentary about you. Yeah. And so I started shooting a lot of footage on her, and I'd go down to the gym, and I met a bunch of boxers. And she was officiating a match, and I came up with this wonderful idea of putting a camera on her. So, <laughs> so we kind of see what she saw. That's a good idea. It was a great idea, but at the time... Uh, the rep cams were about the size of, <laughs> of your shoes. So it didn't work real well. I couldn't do it. And she, it would have put her in danger. Yeah. Because if one of the guys had hit it, it would have hurt hers. And, and did she ever get hit by accident? At the time, she said no. She said she'd never been hit. But boy, you know, they're swinging hard. I And she stepped in. Oh, she scared the heck out of me. I wouldn't have done it. I know what that's like. I, in the movie that I made called Paper Lion, where I was playing... Uh, what the hell is his name? George Plimpton. Yes, thank you. Why don't I interview you? <laughs> so I, in one scene, I was uh, boxing with Sugar Ray Leonard. <laughs> I think it was Sugar Ray Leonard. Wow, my goodness. And I stepped into his right hand, and I got a bloody nose. Oh, oh wow. Boy. And he felt terrible about it because he's, you know, he was in a position to be more in control, he thought. Of course. But even by accident, and it wasn't a serious punch. It did. I didn't like it. <laughs> so, so now that you're taking uh, boxing lessons, do you want to have a rematch with Sugar Ray? Is that what you want? <laughs> no, I, I, I take it because I have Parkinson's, and it's good uh, therapy for Parkinson's. Right, right. But I love it. It's not nice. I, nobody hits me. I hit the guy in his padded hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's it's fun. It's it's more like dancing than I, I than not. I didn't realize that you don't just stick out your arm when you throw a punch. You had to do it with your whole body all the way down to your toes. Yep. To get back to the toes metaphor from before, <laughs> it'll probably keep coming up as we go on. <laughs> I, uh, when I was doing the, the shooting with Gwen, uh, I visited a lot of gyms and watched a lot of boxers work out. And I was really blown away about how um, dedicated they are. You know, you think, oh, well, it's just a fight. Somebody gets mad and hits somebody. That isn't it. It's a real planned sport. I mean, you got to think about it. And the way they train for it is really pretty amazing. I, I was very impressed with their athleticism. Yeah. If they could only do the boxing part and leave out the blood, I'd be a lot happier. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, I was uh, having dinner last night with a friend because I do have a couple of them. <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> it's so wonderful to have them. Uh, and, you know, I told him that you were coming on the podcast today and he said, please, would you tell Mr. Alba that I have watched him over the years and I have never, ever seen him give a bad performance that you are always 100% spot on with every character you have ever done. Well, I think he's a slacker who just hasn't watched enough. <laughs> How dare this guy yeah. categorize me without seeing without everything. Seeing. <laughs> We're going to send him some material so he can review you. I, I got a few I can play for him. <laughs> hey, have you ever done something that you went, eh, 
gee, maybe that wasn't the best one. Yeah, including some stuff on MASH. I remember, <laughs> I remember watching one episode with Arlene, my wife, and there was one shot where I said a line, and she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I had already beat her to it. <laughs> Well, I, I won't ask you exactly what that one was. but I don't exactly remember. It had something to do with a bomb. Uh, and I just uh, wasn't, I wasn't up to it that day. The whole day I was off. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, one of the things that just impressed the heck out of me back then was the fact that you were on the set five days a week, the entire run of, of the season that we were producing. And then you were traveling back to, to New Jersey, I believe, on the weekends to be with your family and then coming back. And you did that for a long time, 11 years. Not 11 years. I did it while the kids were still in high school. Hmm. And the reason I did it was they were just, some of them were just entering puberty and they were just entering a whole new world in, in their friendships and meeting new people and establishing a life outside the family. Yeah. And it didn't seem like a fair thing to do to rip them out of that and tell them now they had to go to a whole new place, a whole new school. So I did the traveling. And it was when they went to college, then Arlene came and stayed with me while we shot. But it was only for about four months out of the year for, I don't know, six or seven years, maybe not that much. So I, I get more credit than I should get. Well, the first season, you didn't think it was going to last long anyway, right? No, I thought it might last a whole year. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea it would be 11 years. <laughs> I don't. There are very few actors who get to work steadily for 11 years. Mm -hmm. it, it was an amazing thing. Yeah. Well, I was about to compliment your stamina at being able to do what you did. And even let's, let's you know, disregard the traveling, just being on that set for 11 years and handling everything you did. Not only were you acting that part, but you were also writing and directing. So the stamina. And then at, for a couple of years, I was doing all of that and foolishly writing and producing a whole other series. Yes, yes, yes. Which yes. didn't last very long, but it was enough to make me so tired, I would come in, I'd, I'd be acting on the set. It really was foolish. I'd be acting on the set. I'd get a break while they were lighting the next scene. I'd come in to the dressing room where there were my collaborators, a couple of writers, and I'd lie on the floor. And while I was talking, I'd fall asleep. <laughs> so it, 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 you can't imagine a lot of great writing came out of that. Well, we hope that doesn't happen here for many reasons, but if it should, we'll buzz you. <laughs> <laughs> well, nevertheless, I, I'm still impressed. And, I, mm. you know, you, maybe you were pushing the limits, but boy, that was a lot. I, what was, how do you get the energy and how do you get the, the motivation to do that? I mean, that was a serious amount of energy you were expending. I, I just must have either a lot of energy or no sense about how to control what I do. <laughs> I used to think it was because I went eight or nine years without getting much work as an actor in the beginning. And when the chance came to say yes to things, I didn't say no to anything. Mm -hmm. But I, it can't just be that because I'm still doing it. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're still doing it. I'm doing it, an audible show, a show, an original thing for audible. Mm. I'm working on a new book. I do my podcast, Clear and Vivid, which I love. And, and that's, uh, that's a full-time job in itself. All of these are full-time jobs. 
and I run the communication company and help the uh, Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook, which I helped found 10 years ago. Hmm. So these are all, you know, and I travel, I give talks to raise money for it. Mm-hmm. Still doing a lot. Wow. And and a day like this where all I have to do is talk to you is a, is a pleasure. Mm. <laughs> the rest of the day is gravy. My goodness. That's that's a lot. Yeah, I, you know, I go into the bathroom, I'm exhausted. I don't <laughs> do that. You don't come out of the bathroom. No, I'm staying. I'm in there now. As a matter of fact, you can do these podcasts anywhere. Oh, that's why the sound is so good. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Well, you mentioned you mentioned your podcast, Clear and Vivid, which I absolutely love, Alan. And uh, thank you. I, I really do. I, you have some exceptional guests on there. Some of the smartest people in the world. One of my favorite episodes, obviously, of your podcast is when you had the MASH reunion and you had uh, Loretta and Gary and Jamie and uh, Mike on your, your podcast. What, how did that come about? And, and logistically, how were you able to pull that off? It was hard. And by the way, Jeff, I wish that you had been on it. I, it, didn't, it, it just didn't cross my mind because I was thinking of the people that I worked with every single day. Oh, of course, I understand that. Would have been great to have you and Kelly Nakahara. You know, because you you both you're both in everybody's mind and heart. You know, who, who knows knows the show? Thank you very much. But it was it was difficult to arrange because we were all in different places. Gary was up in Northern California somewhere, and uh, Jamie was at his house that had nearly burned down in a big fire out there. Mm-hmm. In fact, we had scheduled the show, and then we had a postpone it because he 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 didn't know if his house had burned down or not he was mm. he was in a whole other state of mind wow and the uh the, the nice thing about this about that episode of the podcast was we picked right up where we had left off mm-hmm. it was as though we were sitting in our chairs waiting for the next shot mm-hmm. <laughs> laughing making fun of each other yeah. telling stories and I was amazed at how people could remember the stories in such funny detail. I had lived through some of the stories and couldn't remember them that well. Well, it was a, it was a great episode. And Clear and Vivid is terrific. I enjoy it very, very much. Thank you for doing it, as a matter of fact. Well, I do it to support this, the, all the Center for Communicating Science. We, we have ads on the show. Mm-hmm. And all the profits that come in go to the Center for Communicating Science. Plus, it's a way to spread the word that we teach communication and relating and that kind of thing. And a lot of the interest in setting up workshops comes from the podcast. So we're doing good. Alan, what has surprised you about podcasting? What, what have you learned from podcasting? I think it's what I, th- I thought of it first as more like radio. But there's an element that's different from radio in that there's a a more personal connection. The audience wants to be and expects to be more personally connected, I think. And we're, we're starting to take part in that a little bit. I think because it grew out of the internet, it is on the internet, but it grew out of the, the social media aspect of the internet where people expect to connect and not just be talked to on a one way street. And that, that did surprise me a little bit because I thought of it more like radio. Mm-hmm. What surprised you? Well, I mean, we come at this show from two different perspectives. Mine is I'm a fan, a lifelong fan of MASH. It's my all-time favorite show, and I adore it, and I celebrate it. And Jeff doesn't like it that much? I'm on the fence. I'm on the <laughs> fence. I, I hear it's good, so 
At, at least it, Ryan keeps telling me it's good. So, <laughs> so what? So what surprised you? Surprise. Well, let me just say that Ryan was a had a radio show many years ago when I wrote my little book, Secrets of the Mash Mess. I was on his show as part of the PR thing that the publisher set up. And he's in Illinois and, you know, I'm in, I was in LA and so I was doing all those radio shows and you got to get up at three o'clock in the morning to do it because everybody's on the other side of the country. So I'm up at three o'clock in the morning and we start this thing. And his show was one of the ones that I really kind of related to in terms of his skill. And I liked him. He was a fun guy to do it with. And we just sort of stayed in touch over the years. And that was, that was 1995, I think, wasn't it, right? Uh, 97, 97, I believe, yeah. Mm. So years later, he called me and we talked and he said, hey, I'm thinking of doing a podcast about MASH. And he said, would you like to come on as a guest? And I just stuck my foot in the door and I said, no, but I'll do it with you. Oh, that's great. And so we started this and I thought, you know, like he said, the perspective that I worked there and Ryan is a, was an emotional fan. And that gets back to what surprised me in doing the podcast was how emotional the fans feel about it. Mm. Personal things they, they tell us about their lives and how the, the show changed their lives. That's what surprised me. You know, I, I see that a lot in uh, messages I get, emails and, uh, and messages on Twitter. It really is interesting. I think MASH changed all our lives, those of us who made it. Yes. And, yes. The, and many of the people who watched it. And something that people, women tell me very frequently, this is the most frequent thing I hear, that they bonded with their fathers for the first time watching the show. Mm especially fathers who had been in the war, usually the, the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and some of them in the Korean War, who had never talked about their war experiences until they watched the shows with their daughters. Mm. And then the men would often, for the first time, break down crying. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment between them that they'd never had before. Mm -hmm. I hear that a lot. Yeah, that, that parental bonding situation with a child, boy, that's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. Very powerful stuff. Yeah. And I'm, you know, when they write very nice things about, you know, they say, oh, Jeff, and, you know, when you came on the screen, you weren't on there very much, but I always knew I was going to laugh. <laughs> I just, you know, that, you know, I read some of these, I get, you know, teary-eyed because I think, wow, well, that's what I was there to do. And so I'm glad you you had that response. And it was fun. It was always fun to play the scenes with you. I always, <laughs> I, I'm picturing you now with those eyes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fun to play the scenes with you, too. <laughs> oh, thanks. Pretty good. And as you, because you were his stand-in, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the most intimidating things that happened to me, one day you were directing a show, and you asked me, or the assistant director, somebody asked me, hey, listen, Adam's got to set these shots up. Would you read the part of Hawkeye? So I had to stand in and, and read it with everybody else, all the other actors. Oh, I, you know, I didn't remember that. I do. It stuck in my head because I was very intimidated to walk around <laughs> being Hawkeye <laughs> for even five minutes. What, what was the scene? I don't remember. All I remember is standing in front of the bulletin board, looking at something. I was talking to Wayne Rogers and there was a scene in there. And, you know, you were setting up angles and things because you were directing that episode. So I was reading the part of Hawkeye. So reading the part of Hawkeye in front of Alan Alda, Hawkeye was very intimidating to Jeff Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have no memory. I don't, I don't remember that scene at all. 
They're, they're blurs to me. They flash little moments flash before my eyes. Yeah. Talking to the kids who played orphans and things like that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Vern, the big guy who used to spray bees with smoke out at the ranch? Remember that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Vern. <laughs> yeah. Guy Vern. And Albert. Remember Albert? Yeah, Albert. <laughs> yes, Albert. He was the costume guy, wasn't he? Albert. Yeah, he was the lovely guy. He was. Whenever I wore a tie, which was almost never, he'd come up and bother me right before the shot to fix my tie, which was a good thing to do because ties always look lousy when they're not tended to. Mm-hmm. But I'd always say, Albert, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the uh, one of the things that flashed when I was thinking about this was the uh, at lunch at the ranch, you'd sit up there and, you know, uh, in that area back behind the set to eat lunch and all the food would be set up. And I'd sit there and I'd put, you know, a piece of meat on my plate and about six or seven yellow jackets would just fly right down on the meat, chew up little people, and fly away. It was just horrifying. Like a horror movie. It's funny. I thought yellow jackets were vegetarians. I never knew. <laughs> Jeff brought up directing, and I wanted to ask you about the evolution of going not just from acting on the show, but also writing for the show and directing the show as well. What were challenges that you faced, and what led to your decision to add writing and directing to your responsibilities on the show? Well, I had always been interested in directing, and I had tried to learn it and teach myself. I've, I've, been, I've been making movies with, uh, you know, home movies with stories when I was 11 years old. So I'd, I had a long interest in it. And Gene Reynolds, as a producer, was encouraging. And the first show I got was a real test. First show I got to direct was a real test. It was a show with a picnic in it. Mm-hmm. Were you involved in that show, Jeff? I think so. Is that the one where the tug of war was? Tug of war yeah. and everybody wound up in the mud. In the mud, yes. And that was that there were 70 extras or 70 actors in the show. Yeah. And I needed something like seven cameras to shoot it. Mm. And this is the first day directing, you know. And at the end of the day, we had about one minute left to get the shot, Mm. which was the tug of war. And they did the tug of war. They fell in the mud. There would have been no way to get them dressed again to do it over. Yeah. They walked away from the mud into the sunset as the sun set right behind the mountain and ended the day right (laughs) on the shot. Click. (laughs) So I was really excited at the end of that day that I could, that I could do it. I could handle it. It was a tough thing to shoot. Yeah. And with the writing, I had shown a few scenes to Larry Gelbart that I wrote and he encouraged me too. And then I, I wrote the first show. It was called the long John flap. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was based on a stolen idea from the La Ronde, where something, an object is passed from one couple to another. Yes. And you see different aspects of lives as it goes from one person to another. So I did that with Long John's in the cold Korean winter. And that was the object that got passed. And that was the first show that I, that I wrote. Larry Gelbart. I, I've I've used the word genius with Larry Gelbart. I kind of still I believe that. Yeah, he was an extraordinary guy. Wasn't he? He had such a comic machine going on in his head. Yeah. And one of the things I admired him for the most was that he didn't say every funny thing he thought of. <laughs> so you didn't get the dregs of comedy from him. You only got the sparkling best ones. I, I remember watching him come down and 
there was a scene that was going on in uh, I think Potter's office or something and something just wasn't going right. Somebody had an issue and he came down and he said, okay, you know, run the scene. And he turned his back to the scene and he just looked at the wall and I thought, gee, that's kind of an odd thing to do. And then he, the scene played and he turned around and he said, okay, you say this, you say this and you say that. And then he left. (laughs) Yeah. It seemed to all work out. He did that all the time. He'd stand and face the wall. Yeah. And then he turned around with a great line and he said, there's a little old Jew who tells me what to say. <laughs> I'm still looking at the wall. Nothing's happening. I'm gonna... <laughs> Are you Jewish? I, yeah, well, I got to find that little guy somewhere in here. Uh, gosh, you know, communication, you're very involved in communication. I'm, I'm wondering and curious where that started. Where did that start for you? Well, it started with acting. Yeah. Because when you act, you have to relate to the other person. You have to respond. You don't say your line because it's written in the script. You say it because the other person makes you say it and makes you say it a certain way. And you only get that impulse if you're really taking in the other person, letting them have an effect on you, letting them change you in some way. And that's what uh, I began to realize was the basis of communication. You're not really communicating if all you're doing is trying to impose your ideas on somebody else. But if you can engage them and let their perspective come into play, let what they're feeling and thinking be something important to you, then it's easier to engage them. It's possible to engage them. Mm -hmm. And then you can offer what you have to offer, but you're also listening to what they have to offer. So that it it really boils down to the idea that if you want to be heard, you have to listen. Mm -hmm. And I found that that was what made the science show I did for 11 years work, because it wasn't an ordinary interview where I would come in with a list of questions and just get them to answer the questions. I just was curious and I wanted to understand their work. And that led to their talking to me instead of making a lecture. Mm -hmm. And as I responded, they responded to me. So there was a live thing going on between us. Mm -hmm. It didn't look canned. It didn't look canned on my end and it didn't look canned on their end. Mm -hmm. And so when I helped start the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook, I built on those ideas. And what we do is we teach improvisational exercises at the beginning of the workshop, and then we help formulate their message, not in terms of what they know about their field, but in terms of how their message can land on the other person because they've engaged them through these techniques. So it's all in terms of the other person. And it opens up everybody, it opens up the speaker. They're more informal, they're more personal, they have more energy. They don't sound like they're talking to themselves. They sound, they sound like they're talking to you, person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it makes you listen. So that's, that's how I got to it. And it's, it's really, really grew out of my life. You know, everything I've been doing and seeing since I was a baby, because my father was an actor too. So everything I've experienced really has played into this. And it's amazing how it works out. We've, we've trained 15,000 scientists and doctors in workshops around the world mm-hmm. in the past 10 years. And it, it helps them in, in every way. Yeah. One guy said, you know, this training is saving my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very, it makes me very happy that I'm able to make that contribution. So when does your marriage counseling podcast begin? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, on the podcast... We devote ourselves to finding people from every conceivable field 
and look for the communication and relating angle in their own lives and in their fields. Mm-hmm. So we've had an FBI hostage negotiator on, mm-hmm. Dr. Ruth, Judge Judy, Madeline Albright, because in negotiating for a hostage or doing diplomacy or making music like Yo-Yo Ma, Itzhak Perlman, Renee Fleming, mm-hmm. doing a- almost anything, comedy. Sarah Silverman was our first show and still our most listened to show hmm. because she had this extraordinary experience where somebody wrote a tweet just using a one word epithet for her. And she didn't block him and she didn't answer him back in a hostile way. She looked up his profile, found out he had back pain, and said, wrote him back personally and said, I think that anger comes from pain. And I understand it because I have back pain, too. Uh. Well, why don't you try to speak from a place of love? And he wrote her back and said, I can't. Love was ripped out of me by a man who abused me when I was a child. Oh, God. And her next step was to find him a place where he could get therapy for free. Mm. He went and took therapy, changed his life, and now they correspond on the internet in a friendly, positive way. Oh, my goodness. It's an extraordinary story. It's amazing. It is. And that's. That's an example of relating and communicating it, you know, where you, you can bring people who hate each other, you can bring them together. We could use some of that now in various aspects of our society. <laughs> Boy, you said it. Boy, yeah. you said it. One of the big themes on your podcast is empathy. And I'm curious how that translates to your acting style, because outside of Hawkeye Pierce, you have done a variety of roles and, and some of the roles that you've played, even as of late in, in like The Aviator and on The Blacklist. And then you have characters who may have some low morals and questionable morals like uh, in Crimes and Misdemeanors and things like that. How do you find empathy for a character when that character is the exact opposite of you? Well, it's partly how I define empathy. I don't think of it as being sympathetic to the person or rooting for the person or wanting the person to succeed. I try to understand the person. But once I play the person, I have to take on, paradoxically, I have to take on desires of the person. So I don't think I'm really able to play a character unless I know what the character wants and not only want it to, but feel like I deserve to get it. And when you get that feeling, then you can play any low life you can name. (laughs) And if all they think is, I deserve to get it because I'm smart enough, I'm smarter than this person, I I can do a better job than this person can defending himself, and I can get what I want, and I deserve to get what I want. We all have a little bit of that impulse in us. Mm -hmm. We've got almost everybody has almost every other human trait that usually doesn't come to the surface, but under the right circumstances, under the right circumstances, we could all be capable of some of the torture that we abhor during the rest of our life. I mean, look how we, we hated the Nazis and we extended that to all the Germans during World War II and the same with the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then when the war was over, we went back to thinking of them as fellow humans. Mm-hmm. Most cases, you know, Talking about acting styles, you were very helpful to me when you I asked you one day, gee, can you recommend an acting teacher? Not that I would need one, but just off the top of my head, I, I asked you and you, you said Viola Spolin. I think we've talked about this before, but you mentioned Viola Spolin, who was an acting teacher. And you said, well, she's in New York. If you ever get there, I would, that's the one I would recommend hooking up with. And luckily for me, two weeks later, she came out to California and she started a school out here 
which I immediately ran over to and was spent a couple of years with her. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. She, I was adored her. And she talked about changing somebody, her technique, the theater games process, and what I went through with her. And then later on, two years after, she kind of retired. And there was another gentleman named Stephen Book who took it over. He was very good as well. That process really changed me as a human being. It changed me too. It changes, I think, if you do it for a while. Yeah. It changes you not only as an actor, but as a person. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It, it was, I mean, it was like a miracle. I went, oh my God, I am a different person having gone through this. And just a bunch of people getting up, playing these games in a bare room, maybe a chair or two, that was about it. Yeah. And having these magical worlds happen and having to find out and communicate with everybody else and listen and do that. It, it was life-changing. So I thank you again for that. <laughs> Well, thank you. She invented that system, that way of working, mm -hmm. I think about 70 or 80 years ago. Yeah. And it, it has been taught a lot in colleges, but I think not so much anymore. I think comedy improvisation has sort of taken over the idea of what improvisation is with her. As, as you well know, it's not comedy improvisation. It's not. No. It's more fundamental, pure kind of work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really amazing how far it can take you. It is. So was that process something that you took with you from that point on and, and applied into your acting, all of your acting? Yeah. I was part of an improvising company at Hyannisport in the 1960s before Kennedy was killed. And it was a comedy cabaret show. And there was no reference to Viola Spolin in her work. It was what I call guts improvising. They three out on stage and you had to be funny for two hours. Oh, gosh. It was really terrifying. Yikes. <laughs> it was so terrifying. One actor in the company on opening night, he pretended to have a concussion so he wouldn't have to go on. <laughs> oh, he came into a rehearsal and did a fake slip on the pavement and hit his head. Oh, wow. And his eyes rolled into his head and his eyes fluttered. And we all said, oh, my God, he's almost dead. And the director said, I think he's faking. <laughs> and he went to the hospital. Then we were going to open that night. And we had sketches. Half the show was sketches that we had done, we had developed in rehearsal. And half was spot improvisations. But who was going to play his part in the set sketches? So the director went to the hospital hours before the show and said, don't worry, it's okay, we got you covered. We, we figured out who's going to play your part. We'll open without you. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't stand that. He came, he showed up and did the show. <laughs> <laughs> the show must go on. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. But then about a year later, back in New York, Paul Sills, who ran Second City, uh, asked me if I wanted to come and do Viola's games two times a week on the stage of Second City, but when they were dark, there was no audience. We were just working out. So we did that for six months. And a couple of times, Viola came in and ran the workshop. But the rest of the time, it was uh, Paul. Oh. And th it was an extraordinary experience. And people would drop. Jane Alexander came in to work out. Oh, wow. Olympia Dukakis. Oh. Yeah. And it, it interests me that... So many actors, and, and mostly comic actors, but not always, were people who had that experience improvising a lot. And I think it just makes you better able to play a scene with another actor because you're, you're more, 
easily connected with the other person. Mm -hmm. You're more spontaneous. Did you ever along the way somewhere, you know, work with another acting coach, teacher with a different approach? No, I couldn't. I couldn't afford. I was very poor when we got married. Mm -hmm. And I was driving a cab and uh, I was a doorman. And at one point, I, I, there was a kind of beer I could get that would cost $1.35 a six-pack. And I like to have one can of beer with dinner every night. But one week, if I bought the beer with that dollar, we wouldn't be able to pay the rent. So I went without that $1.35 worth of beer that week. So I couldn't afford acting lessons. Okay. And that was coupled with this crazy idea I had that I had a natural genius that lessons would hurt. <laughs> and I found out after about 15 years that what I thought was my natural genius was a group of mannerisms that were annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, they served you well, though. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, well, I thought when I got rid of them, then I could get jobs. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so you were on the stage at uh, like five years old. Is that right? Worse than that. My father brought me on stage in a burlesque sketch when I was six months old. Oh, my gosh. And then a comedian called Joey Adams brought me on in his comedy act around the same time in the Catskills. And when I was three, they put me in a sketch. When I was nine, I did Abbott and Costello sketches with my father at the Hollywood Canteen, <laughs> where the soldiers and sailors came during the war. And your, your dad being Robert Alda. Yeah, who people don't know now, but he was a movie star, yeah. and a Broadway star, mm -hmm. yes. played in Guys and Dolls. And his first movie was a big hit, and then the studio put him in lousy movies after that, so he didn't surface again until Guys and Dolls. I remember he was doing one of the MASH episodes, and we were standing up on the helicopter pad out there at the ranch. Yeah. I was a kid. I loved meeting everybody and meeting Robert Alder. This was a thrill for me to, to be involved with all of this stuff. And I was just watching him and he did a rehearsal and he wandered over to Bill Jurgensen, the director of photography, who was sitting on the camera watching about to shoot. And your dad walked over and he kind of leaned over, quietly said, uh, Bill, uh, in these kinds of scenes, I get a uh, 14 uh, filter. I get a what? Well, that's I didn't know either. <laughs> he, he made some number. I get a 14 uh, silk something or another filter. <laughs> I never heard this. What did he mean? Uh, well, I, I and I was fascinated. I just happened to hear it and I was fascinated. And he walked away and I went over to Bill. I said, Bill. I will have to learn this. What's a 40-something filter? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What if you made it up? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, so that was fun. <laughs> well, Alan, uh, speaking of your father, there was a, one particular episode that he appeared on where not just him, but also your brother. Yeah. You and your father and brother appeared in one scene. How did that come about, and what are your memories of shooting that scene? That was the show, the second show that my father did on MASH, and uh, I wrote it. And, and he was very good-natured about this because he knew I was doing this. I used our family's caricature of his personality, which was that he was kind of controlling. <laughs> and I, I, I made it even worse. I extended it pretty far where he would tell you how to eat your food and don't mix those two foods together and that kind of thing, and drove Hawkeye crazy. And then he said, he suggested, you know, it would be funny in the end of the show if they have to go to an aid station and the aid station gets bombed. 
and they're both surgeons, but one of them in the bombing, one of them has been wounded in his right hand and the other been wounded in his left hand. And they have to do an operation together, each of them using one hand, working together. And I heard this idea and I thought, that's the worst idea I ever heard. (laughs) And I thought, this is, he's back making burlesque sketches again. (laughs) Tin Pan Alley songs. This is corny. And then I thought, maybe he's right. Give the guy a chance. He's got all this experience. He's been in show business all his life. Maybe it's worth, maybe as corny as it sounds to me, maybe maybe it would work. So I wrote the scene that way. And the interesting thing was when we did it, when we played it for the camera, there was this interesting intersection. It wasn't only these two characters who hadn't been getting along, who had to cooperate and each be the hand of the other. It was us, a real father and son, who had been a little competitive. I was more competitive toward him. He was never competitive toward me. But now we were equals. It It was his idea. He was the other hand. And we had to tie a knot together. And it was it turned out to be an extraordinary experience, whether whether it was a corny show or not. It didn't matter to me yeah. after that. What mattered was that I got somewhere in that relationship that I hadn't been before. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And in addition to that, I was able to write a part for my brother. So the three of us were all in the same scene. That's a beautiful story. I didn't know that. That's, that's quite wonderful. Wow. You know, MASH went for a long time and it had uh, some losses along the way of characters. Uh, first Wayne Rogers and then McLean. I think actually McLean was first, wasn't he? He he left the show. You know, I can't remember. I think you're right. I think he left and then Wayne and then Gary. Uh, w- was that difficult, you know, on everybody? Was that a very impactful and troublesome moment for everybody? You know, I don't remember it's being difficult. I remember that we all were looking forward to the new actors and rooting for them Mm -hmm. and looking forward to a whole new batch of stories and a whole new kind of story because the producers didn't try to copy the characters that were leaving. They decided on trying to find interesting characters that had a completely different flavor to them. So you're bound to have different relationships and different conflicts and that kind of thing. And we, I think we were all excited about it. Mm-hmm. It was naturally, we were sorry to see them go. I was very sorry to see Larry Wendell go. Yeah. And Wayne, Wayne was a close friend. And he, just, he didn't feel like he was getting enough interesting scenes to play and thought he'd, he'd be happier doing something else. Mm-hmm. McLean was offered a, what sounded to him like a huge deal by another network. And I think he was later, we ran into him in a shopping center and he told us he was, he felt he had made the wrong decision. Mm. I don't know what we were all doing in the shopping center. <laughs> Isn't that a weird thing? We're coming up on the escalator. There's like three of us from the show and he's at the top of the escalator. What the hell were we doing? <laughs> it was fate, I guess. <laughs> what were your memories of McLean on the set? McLean made us fall down from laughter. Mm -hmm. He was constantly improvising monologues that were absurd and ribald and very funny. And when Harry came in to play the equivalent part, Harry had us falling down too, but not with things he said. It was really his attitude about things and a twinkle in his eye, and we would collapse. (laughs) He He was adorable. And then you had characters like Frank Burns, 
played by Larry Linville, a character that you talk about trying to find empathy for a character. That's a hard character to play, but he did it beautifully. He did. And he, he was a good soldier in playing no matter how far they took the character in his wackiness and his, what do you, I can't think of the word right now, but isn't this awful? When you can't think of a word, you mustn't keep trying to find it because it keeps running away like a rabbit. It runs away <laughs> like crazy. Yeah. Right. Anyway, it, he, he good-naturedly played it no matter how bizarre they let the character be. But then I think finally it was a little too much and he wanted to change it. And they, they wound up playing this, writing the same scene many times over between him and Hot Lips. And there's only so many times you can do that kind of a scene. And Loretta was emerging from that because she was determined to make her character more of a three-dimensional person. Mm -hmm. And I, I helped where I could whenever I wrote the show to try to find more sides to her and to everybody else, Max Klinger, too. Like, it seemed important to me that there was more about him that we should know than that he wore dresses to get out of the army. Mm -hmm. Right. And and I think the other writers on the show felt the same way and, and his character. And I think he contributed to it. And his character had many more sides to it, certainly than when he started, which just was a one dimensional joke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a wonderful development of the character and, and good for the show. I love, too, that when Frank left the show, when Larry left the show, that you did not try to replace him with another Frank Burns. Yeah. You found a completely different, unique character in Charles Emerson Winchester, which is one of my all-time favorite characters on the show, played marvelously by David Ogden Stiers. Yeah, he was wonderful in the part. Yeah, he was just great. Yeah. It's so sad to lose these people. There's yeah. such... Good people and good actors. Yeah, and, and people who were fans of the show or watching the show, they felt lost as too because they were losing certain people and certain characters that they bonded with and fell in love with. And that must have been difficult for them. But then uh, the genius of, of MASH, like you said, being able to pick it up and find new people who were interesting in a different direction to sort of you know save the day because otherwise I think people would have been so sad that maybe they would have tuned out. But luckily, they didn't. I think one of the things that really helped is from the moment of conceiving of the character through developing the character in various episodes, there was always an, an attempt to find out as much about the person as you could. So it wouldn't be a one-note character and wouldn't just say predictable things line after line. And in that way, it wasn't a conventional sitcom. It was more like a drama. Except we got to, we did so many shows, we got to play because we chose to and the audience allowed us to. We got to play in many different styles. There was regular drama, there was comedy, there was satire, fall down stupid comedy, all different kinds of shows. Yeah. There was one particular show I'd like to ask about because it is a polarizing episode among MASH fans, and that's Dreams. It's polarizing? I didn't know that. What was it polarizing? When fans bring up their favorite episodes and then, you know, on Facebook, everybody wants equal time, so they want to also bring up their least favorite episodes. And oftentimes people say Dreams because it was just weird. And I disagree with that. I think it's an amazing commentary on how the war affects the psyche of the people 
people who are dealing with it and and how it invades even their sleep, where it, which is supposed to be the time that they can escape the war. I would just love to hear your thoughts on that particular episode. You wrote it, you directed it, because I love dreams. I'd love it too. It's one. Of, it's among those episodes that we told in a different storytelling way, though, an unusual way. It's like, like the story that where we told the story through the eyes of one of the wounded. Yes. The camera was the patient. Letters home was a different form. Uh, a lot of different attempts at telling stories in an unusual way, and, and Dreams was one of them, and I, I like to explore that. And uh, Gene Reynolds, who was producing the show, when I suggested it to him, said, oh, don't, don't write that story. That, that, that's a regular sitcom story where people dream um, their imaginary best interests of the the employee gets even with the boss during the dream or something like that. <laughs> right, right. And I said, that's sort of the opposite of what I want to do. I want to show how the war has affected them through looking at their dreams. And it, ga- it gave us a chance to show a side of the experience that you, you don't ordinarily see. I mean, ob- one obvious side of the experience is patching them up in the surgery, but how does it affect them when they're eating? How does it affect them when they're lonely, when they're writing letters home? How does it affect them when they're even asleep? What I like and what I'm grateful for to the people who didn't like the show is that we sort of had an unspoken deal with the audience, or at least I felt we did, that we could experiment a little and they would trust us to come back the following week with something that was more like we had done before. Yeah. And we could carry on the tradition they were accustomed to, even if they were uncomfortable with what we showed them this week. Being a triple threat writer, actor, director. That's three ways to get killed, you know? Kill. (laughs) 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 Uh, Do you you have a favorite? I mean, is there one you enjoy more than the other? No, I don't direct anymore. I haven't wanted to direct in 20 years or so. I love writing. But I love the experience of acting. I love to get in a space with another actor and find a scene with them, find a connection. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience. And it, it doesn't take the kind of digging into your unconscious the way writing sometimes does. At least most of the time it does. Sometimes it does, and that's even more fun. So I, I guess I, I don't know. They're almost equal to me. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be an actor. Well, your latest movie, Marriage Story, you were just terrific in that. Oh, great movie. You were wonderful. Thank you. I love that movie. Oh, yeah. I love the performances in it. Yeah. Adam Driver. And, yes. You know, I, I love her, and I love her work. I, her first name always loses. Scarlet. Scarlet. Why does that happen? I, I keep wanting to say Priscilla. <laughs> I got the SC, but I put the SC in the wrong part of the name. She kind of looks like a Priscilla. I can see yeah. that. Priscilla Johansson. Yeah, no, don't, right. you're making it worse for me now. I'm <laughs> she's, such a, she's such a wonderful person, but what a brilliant performance. Whether she, Even if she was a, a schlemiel as a person, what a performance. That oh, my goodness. Adam Driver, you know, I, I think he's going to be able to do anything. He's an amazing actor. Yeah, absolutely. Big guy. Really big. <laughs> big guy. I, it used to, I, there's one scene where I have to give him a hug. Yeah. And every time we did the shot, his shoulder would catch me in my Adam's apple, <laughs> which is kind of painful. So after about the fifth take, I'd, I'd go to hug him and I'd say, here it comes, the shoulder again. 
funny what you think of while you're acting. You mentioned the word hug. I, you were very, very uh, important to me at the end of the show. I think the last little party on the set at the end of the show, and we were all walking around and eating and drinking or doing whatever we're doing. And you came over to me and you, you hugged me. And you said, I'm going to give you this hug. It's for success because somebody hugged me for success one time and I'm passing it along to you. And uh, it was very touching. I never forgot it. You then wandered over and hugged a copy machine and a smoke. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't remember this at all. Are you sure you weren't drunk? <laughs> no, I'm not who, sure. Who, but... oh, I can't remember anybody who ever hugged me for good luck. My wife. <laughs> Did it chew you up for a while? I hope so. I, I'm working on it. <laughs> You're passing the hug along? Yeah, I'm passing it. I'm, I'm paying it forward. I really am. Speaking of the end of the show, what were your memories around Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen? The, the writing process, the filming, and, and the reception, the craziness around the airing of the last episode? It was very difficult to shoot. Well, the, the last shot we did was not from a, the, the final episode that was aired because I needed a lot of time to edit that show it was a two-hour movie yeah that went with commercials ran two and a half hours so it gives you an idea of how many commercials we had to watch to get some entertainment uh in those days i think it's even worse now yeah the uh the, at the final shot which was uh, the next to last show that was aired there were about 300 people on the set from the press and it was really hard to concentrate on the scene because in a way, the cameras, the audience, and the press was the equivalent of the audience standing in the wings watching you while you're trying to perform for the where the audience is supposed to be. And it was very distracting, but we, we were beginning to get a sense of the impact that the show had on the country. And when the final episode was played, we were driving to a restaurant together to celebrate, and the streets were empty. And it suddenly occurred to us that half the country was home watching at the same time. Hmm. And I guess you know that while it was playing in New York City, when the first commercial came, everybody went to the bathroom at the same time. And the waterworks in New York almost got ruined. <laughs> oh, we're back in the bathroom, aren't yeah. we? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you never know what theme will emerge. <laughs> no, you don't. Well, we're not going to keep you too much longer. We have a, one comment. I'm, I know you were not born Alan Alda. That was not your name. No. You were Alfonso Joseph D'Abruzzo. Yeah, well, I was born Alfonso D'Abruzzo. The Joseph came later. And you changed it. No, well, I, you, my father changed it. He, he was also Alfonso D'Abruzzo. And he took AL from Alfonso and DA from D'Abruzzo when he was a young actor and made Alda. So... In the army, I think I was uh, Alfonso de Bruzzo, but it became clear that nobody could pronounce the name. Okay. <laughs> so, I, so I thought I'll stick with the name that I had all my life and my father has used. Hmm. Neither one of us ever changed it legally. Oh, really? Well, now they don't. But a while ago, it was a big deal. You want to change your name to have some really cool sounding name as an actor. But now you got guys, you know, performers and actors like 50 Cent and you know, Ice-T. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a different thing. I, it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't matter what the name is. I don't know. Maybe you 
could still be Alfonso. I know. Well, I, I think it's great that people are using their own real names. Well, I, I really thought about using D'Abruzzo because at that time, Italian actors were beginning to use their own family name, like Franciosa. Uh-huh. A few years earlier, that would have been uh, Higginbottom or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, and I remember... I, I please pass along my greetings to your your family. Thank you, your wife. And uh, I remember on the set at stage nine, your two youngest daughters, B and Liz. Yeah, we used to run around, and they would. I guess because I was kind of a goofy guy, and I was colorful and out there, they sort of adopted me for a minute as a sort of a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember they'd say, "Come on, take us to the Coke machine. Let's go to the candy machine. Let's oh, do this. Let's do funny. that." So I didn't I was, know that. That's funny. Yeah, they were very very cute. Had a good time. That's great. Please give them my best. I will. They'll be glad to hear that. You guys have been fun to talk to. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Alan. And uh, thank you for all the memories and uh, for everything you've done for MASH fans throughout the years. And we are just tickled and honored and thrilled that you have spent this time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You brought back happy memories of the time that we were all lucky to be part of. So thanks so much. How cool was that? Jeff Maxwell. <laughs> hey, Ryan, that was a lot of fun. It's so good to uh, talk to Alan and uh, sort of reminisce about uh, really wonderful moments in our lives and, uh, and a lot of people's lives. So that was really fun for me. I hope it was as fun for Alan because, boy, that was very, very enjoyable. Oh, man. As a lifelong MASH fan myself, I'm on cloud nine. This is just amazing. And I am so thankful to Alan for coming on. I'm thankful to you, Jeff, for being a part of this and bringing all of these wonderful people to this podcast. Well, I snuck onto the set many years ago and they just couldn't get rid of me. So uh, (laughs) thankfully, (laughs) I was just, you know, off the radar enough. They let me stay there long enough for Uh, later on for us to be able to do this. So that's uh, very rewarding and a lot of fun. If this was your first time listening to MASH Matters, we encourage you to go to mashmatterspodcast.com where you can listen to all of our back episodes. You can also find our back episodes on uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio and Spotify and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, we have a lot of fun on this podcast, answering a lot of questions from listeners and voicemails. If you would like to call and leave a voicemail, call 513-436-406. Seven seven. Just keep that voicemail under three minutes. You can email us your questions through our website. You can uh, also tweet us at Mash Matters. We're on Facebook. You can listen to the episodes on YouTube. We're everywhere. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. We would really, really appreciate it. Jeff, we have a lot of great listener questions and voicemails to get to. Well, we'll have some great answers for those great questions, won't we? I make no guarantees. <laughs> I, I'm not going to guarantee great answers. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a little too much, isn't it? Well, I'm so excited over the uh, second year anniversary. I'm just all a Twitter. You know, I just can't help myself. My belly button's been puckering and unpuckering all day. Oh, my. I don't think you could say that on a podcast. Please. <laughs> Please. This is a family podcast. Until next time, when we kick off year three of Mash Matters Podcasts, here's looking up your old address. Mm-hmm.